0: For the last few weeks, people around the world have been tuning in to one of the biggest sporting events since the start of the pandemic. Euro 2020 finally gets underway, even if it is a year behind schedule. This year's Euro 2020 football tournament brought together 24 national teams from across Europe. And like most international tournaments, there's a conversation to be had about nationalism Whether it's teams' butting heads or the ethnic and racial makeup of those teams.
1: The football team makes the nation feel good, um, at least while it's winning.
0: So, what can this tournament and this sport tell us about Europe? I'm Malika Bilal, and this is The Take. When the subject of soccer, or football, as we'll call it throughout this episode, comes up, the Take team turns to one of our colleagues who has an academic knowledge of the sport.
1: I am Tony Caron. I am the editorial lead of AJ Plus, and I am a South African-born, lifelong Liverpool football club fan. And among other things, I teach a course at the New School in the Graduate Program in International Affairs, on the politics of global football or soccer, as it's more colloquially known in these parts.
0: Tony also co-hosted an Al Jazeera podcast himself a while back called The Game of Our Lives. It's about understanding the world through its most popular pastime.
1: To understand football fans, you have to understand that it's always more than just a game. There are many reasons we love the game as one might love any other game. It might be basketball, it might be cricket, it might be tennis, it might be Formula One. But football has a very unique culture attached to it. The the innocent bystander might be like, wow, these people are singing in stadiums. They're singing what sound like hymns. What's that all about?
0: Tony says it goes back to the development of the modern form of the game which came after the Industrial Revolution.
1: And you had rural communities being uprooted and moved to new cities, lacking a sense of community that had once been the village church. And that football clubs actually came to replace that. Big industrial centers spawned this form of communion, really. If, if I have to explain football fandom in a nutshell, it would be collective suffering. <laughs>
0: I like that. (laughs) I think sports fans all over the world, any sport, can probably relate to that. Exactly. We're speaking today ahead of the Euro 2020 semifinals. The tournament is still being called Euro 2020, even though it was delayed by a year because of the pandemic. And UEFA, the European football governing body, had decided in 2012 to make this a pan-European tournament held in 11 different countries. So despite COVID, that still went forward. Can you tell me more about why this tournament is happening now, why it's taking place in so many countries and, and how it's being received?
1: Well, pan-European football competition actually begins in the 1950s, and it's very closely tied to the project of European unification after World War II. There's this idea of uniting the continent through sports. I think the idea of spreading out the the tournament across a number of different countries is partly to capture the local. Um, Football is very rooted in a local, culture, in a local crowd, in the passion generated by home fans in particular. And so I think this was an attempt to, rather than host the tournament in a single place like you would have with an Olympic City or with a World Cup, to spread that around a bit. Of course, COVID disrupted that.
0: The tournament is still cross-continental, with matches taking place in cities as spread out as Seville and St. Petersburg. But it's controversial. Scientists are warning that the Euros have already led to a rise in infections.
1: Germany's interior minister called UEFA's decision to allow big crowds utterly irresponsible. When you say, why is this tournament happening now? I think a lot of us and a lot of the players ask the same question in a very bitter way after Christian Eriksen, the Danish player, suffered a cardiac arrest in, in Denmark's first game on the field. His teammates formed a human shield around him as he was given CPR on the pitch for several minutes before being taken away on a stretcher.
0: Christian Eriksen is said to be in a stable and good condition in hospital.
1: And that was just a reminder that after almost two back-to-back seasons because of COVID, the players are mentally and physically exhausted. And it really did seem to be a case of greed, essentially, that there's money to be made of selling the TV rights of this tournament. And so it goes ahead no matter what, the risk to the players, the risk to the fans, etc. It's one of those things that also captures the essence of what I was saying earlier about the communion of football. I often make the comparison with the Catholic church. Many people among the Catholic faithful know that the church is historically corrupt and has been very oppressive over centuries to many, many peoples. So there's a real sort of shadow over the church as an institution. But that doesn't change the faith of the people who fill the pews on Sundays. There's the faith and ritual and there's the hierarchy. And I think in football there's a similar bifurcation. We know that FIFA is corrupt. We know that UEFA is corrupt, (laughs) self-serving, greedy, etc. But (laughs) when the game kicks off, we're in the pews. Yeah, (laughs) it's a great
0: way to put it. So every time there is an international football tournament, the question of nationalism seems to pop up and this time, it didn't even take a match for us to actually reach that point in the conversation. The first debacle had to do with what UEFA called a political slogan on Ukraine's jersey. What happened there?
1: So, yeah, this is very much in keeping with tradition of football as the continuation of war by other means. That said, far gentler and and safer means, sort of ritualized combat in which nobody really gets hurt. The Ukraine example was uh, Ukraine's shirt for the tournament depicted a map of Ukraine that included Crimea. And as we you know, Crimea has been re by Russia. Also included
0: are the slogans Glory to Ukraine, Glory to the Heroes, both used
1: as official military greetings. These slogans were first popularized during World War I as a rallying cry against the Soviet rule, and they were used quite frequently during the ousting of the Kremlin-backed former president in 2014. Here's what Ukrainian
0: midfielder Taras Stepanenko had to say about the shirts. We like the kit very much. Design is cool. I think everyone liked
1: it in Ukraine, as well as in Europe, and in the entire world. Map on the chest
0: is cool. As it turned out, not everyone actually liked it.
1: Nationalistic and echoing a Nazi rallying cry. That's how Russia's foreign ministry sees Ukraine's new football kit for the Euro 2020 championships.
0: After a complaint from Russia... UEFA had Ukraine take one of the slogans off the shirts for being political in nature, though they allowed the map to stay. It's all part of a balancing act that's become familiar over the years, and not just with Russia and Ukraine.
1: UEFA tries to manage the danger that this phenomenon in the game presents because it's ever-present. You know, every time any version of any element of the former Yugoslavia is involved in any football contest, there is always the subtext of conflict. So the last World Cup, there was a moment where what uh, some of us used to jokingly call the former Yugoslav Republic of Switzerland, because (laughs) seven of their players were either Kosovar or Bosnian. You had this moment where Jordan Shakiri, who's Kosovar-Albanian player for Switzerland, scores a goal runs off towards the, the, the bleachers and simply crosses his fists across his chest. But all of the Serb fans they were playing Serbia knew exactly what that meant. He was symbolising the double-headed eagle of the Albanian flag, and that caused absolute mayhem and pandemonium. So there's always the subtext of these historical wars. And of course, Europe is replete with and solve historical wars and conflicts. So I will say it's a safe way of expressing that, even though the, the schisms that are really there and remain in, in society, football provides a relatively harmless outlet, except when it, when it's not harmless.
0: In the end, FIFA, the global football organization UEFA belongs to, ended up fining Shakiri and another player for being unsporting. Kosovar Albanians launched a funding campaign to pay off the fines of the Swiss players, which brings up a whole new question. Who ends up playing for which national team and why? So when you watch this year's Euro tournament itself, it looks like the national teams are becoming much more ethnically and racially diverse. Is that actually true? And if it is, what's driving that?
1: I to be honest I think it's actually been the case for quite some time now that football not only reflects diversification shall we say of these european societies but in many ways is a leading indicator of possibilities of a more inclusive version of the nations so you know, if you look at the french team that won the world cup in 1998 there were six or seven players that came from uh, the caribbean or africa they were African and Arab players. Jean-Marie Le Pen, then the head of the far right Front National had declared this is not a real French team because essentially there are black and Arab players on it. And yet it wins the tournament and everybody in France there's a you know, giddy honeymoon moment as if we can all get along because it's winning. You know? <laughs> that would be a good example of signaling the possibilities. The shadow comes, and many players in Europe will tell you that when they're winning, they're Belgian, or they're French, or or, or, or German, but when they're losing, they're Ghanaian, or Congolese, or, or Arab, in the way that French would use that. The nationalist sort of narrative kicks in, the exclusionary narrative kicks in when the team is, is losing.
0: Players reference this so often, it's become a trope. Mesut Ozil, a former German star of Turkish descent, retired from the country's national team in 2018. He cited discrimination as one of his reasons for leaving. In a statement, he said he was a German when he won, but an immigrant when he lost. Plenty of other players, like Belgium's Romelu Lukaku and Francis Karim Benzema, have reflected on their experiences in a similar way.
1: I think, on the whole, are the teams more diverse now than they were 10 years ago? Not necessarily. I think the politics of diversity perhaps has changed. Like, the fact that England now takes a knee uh, before every game, and there's a conscious effort th- you know, throughout the team to express some solidarity with Black Lives Matter and those principles. The
0: English team last week, taking a knee at their first match of the European Soccer Championship, to a few boos from their own supporters.
1: This is an ongoing struggle within football, particularly to get the white players to actually stand together against racism with the black players. And over the years, it has evolved now. There's an understanding in the England squad, for example, that if any of their players is targeted for racial abuse, they will all walk off together. So I think there's... uh, there's a more politicized version of that diverse national identity at work.
0: Interesting. You mentioned exclusionary tactics that some players sometimes face. Is that coming from the fans? Is that coming from sports media? Where would those narratives come from?
1: Excellent question. So I think historically, you know, in the way that football encourages uh, a more bellicose nationalism in a way, or at least a performance of bellicosity. You will see that there's typically, in many of the, the European nations, a very right-wing nationalist strain among the fans. So, you know, for years, you would have these England fans, every time they played Germany, they sing uh, two World Wars and one World Cup to the, the tune of the Campdown Ladies. And it's kind of preposterous, really. But they're reenacting World War II and in their minds, except they usually lose, which (laughs) makes it a little more ironic. Um, You know, Englishness is a very strange and kind of narrow identity.
0: That narrative of exclusion, Tony mentioned, also gets an assist from the media. And Tony said one player in this tournament has really been at the center of English headlines.
1: Particularly in, in the case of England right now, you see Raheem Sterling, who was born in Jamaica and he's England's star player. Today, the Sun, the Murdoch tabloids are loving Raheem Sterling. But a couple of years ago, they were hating on Raheem Sterling, like unbelievable level of abuse. Sterling's
0: been on the receiving end of this for years, but there are a few incidents that have stuck in the collective memory. One is about the coverage British media devoted to a house he bought for his mother. They say it was blinging and called him Obscene Raheem. There's been quite a bit of conversation over his depiction in the media.
1: The allegation that the media are racist yes. to Raheem Sterling and other black players, I find that hard to, to agree with. The way forward is to accept that words matter.
0: Sterling grew up in the shadow of Wembley Stadium, the home of the English national team, and he shared his life story for the press and public countless times. His mother moved the family from Jamaica to England and cleaned hotel rooms while getting her degree and raising her family. He's also been vocal about the impact of these kinds of stories that single out Black players for how they spend their money. Here he is talking to BBC Newsnight last year.
1: I felt like I needed to say something to, you know, kind of make people understand the words that they use are, you know, are damaging and, you know, can can really affect people and, and, and how they see things and think. Raheem Sterling buys his mother a house. Now, he's a footballer who earns millions of pounds a a year. He buys his mother a house with a nice bathroom. And the tabloids are, like, all over this as if he's some sort of drug kingpin. You know, look at how he's spending his money. And Sterling's like, hey, my mother used to clean toilets so that I could go and play football. Like, of course I'm going to do what I can to give her a comfortable uh, life in her, her old age. But there's this real visceral, privileged, cultural norm that... Exists in a part of the fan base and then definitely encouraged by sort of right-wing media. But, you know, right now we're in the golden season. England is winning. And so, you know, right now they're loving them. I mean, you know, heaven help Raheem if he misses a penalty. (laughs) That's all I'd say.
0: So throughout the years, some figures in international football have pushed back against dual citizens playing on national teams. For example, a few years ago, a Swiss football official said that perhaps dual citizens should be required to drop any other nationalities if they want to play for the Swiss team. So what are some of the reactions you've seen institutionally surrounding that kind of issue?
1: Switzerland is such a brilliant example of that because you only have to go back to, I think it was at the 2016 Euros, there was a match involving uh, Switzerland and Albania.
0: Several of the Albanian players in that game were born in Switzerland, or spent some part of their lifetime there. And many of the Swiss players were of Albanian descent. There were even two brothers, Granit and Taulent Jaka, playing on opposing sides.
1: For a Swiss official to be s- suggesting that is quite preposterous, not only because of the extent to which Switzerland relies on on immigrant players, but also because Switzerland's political culture is so hostile to, to immigrants and particularly to Muslims. But what that really tells us is that FIFA, which is the global governing body that sets the rules, in some ways is ahead of nation states in terms of understanding and reckoning with contemporary patterns of migration and the affinities that that throws up. So under under those rules, you can play for the country you live in, you were born in, or you can play for the country of your parents or even grandparents. In many ways that reckons with what the nation state actually means. And even I would say with the coloniality of what France as a national entity means, or what Belgium as a national entity means, or Portugal, many players, from the the colonized countries representing those nation states but there's also a sense that their identity is senegalese or their identity is is congolese and it's not a conflict
0: so we are recording this interview on July 6 there's a big game in a few hours who are you rooting for <laughs>
1: It's a tough one. So Italy didn't qualify for the last World Cup, which is almost unthinkable. They had to kind of rebuild. They used to be very, very tough, very rough, very physical. And now they play this lovely, very quick attacking football. They're young, they're fresh, they're not a team of stars. They're hard not to, in this particular encounter with Spain, not to love. I I would love to see this particular Italy team go all the way.
0: And that's what happened. Right after I spoke with Tony, Italy and Spain played in a match that ended in penalty kicks. The Italian player, Jorginho, was the last to take his shot. He's Brazilian-born and qualifies for Italy's team thanks to his Italian grandfather. And he sent a beautiful, decisive ball into the net, sealing Italy's place in Sunday's final.
1: Italy, Italy are in the Euro 2020 final. Sent there by a boy
0: from Brazil.
1: The one thing I do like to impress on people is the whole idea of the nation really is a story. The state is a material thing. It exists. It's real. You come to a border. There's a guy with a gun and a uniform who says, where's your passport? Or whatever you, you can't mistake the existence of the state. But the idea of the nation, which is used to legitimize the state, really is an idea. It's a manufactured sense of we're all in this, in this together. And. It's a point that the great historian Eric Hobsbawm once made that, the, as he put it, nowhere is the imagined community of millions more real than in the form of 11 named players on a football field. And I think you really see that in, in Europe, both the perils sometimes, but also the possibilities that that invites for a more inclusive sense of who and what the nation is and could be.
0: And that's The Take. This episode was produced by Nagin Oliai, with Priyanka Tove, Alexandra Locke, Tina Kispe, Nay Alvarez, Amy Walters, and me, Malika Bilal. Tom Fenton is our story editor. Alex Roldan is our sound designer. Aya El-Milek is our engagement producer. And Stacey Samuel is our executive producer. We'll be back.